On the boat train, they hardly spoke. The night in the station hotel had not been as she'd imagined. They were both so tired that they fell asleep as soon as they were in bed, and woke at two to find the light burning. Irene next woke to the bustle of the traffic in the station, and lay wondering what would happen when her new husband stirred. Not much did happen. He smiled, gave her a kiss, put his arm round her neck, and pulled her head towards him. Then he said, We must stand up and take our breakfast. We must be in good time for our train. The journey was quiet. She stared at the Kent countryside disappearing behind them. She found its prettiness comforting, as she always had when setting out to Paris or Dresden or Florence. But this time she was leaving for good. Each oast house, each church, seemed to be joining in a chorus of farewell. Thomas had bought a book at the station that identified the historic buildings they would be passing, and from time to time he refreshed Irene's memory. This involvement in the past was not something she was used to. The last thing in the world she and her friends had ever done was to look at old buildings. What they liked was to talk about the post-impressionists and Wyndham Lewis and Maeterlinck. But she felt it was good for her. Your countryside is so gentle. Wait till I show you Bavaria. You will love it. So dramatic, so spiritual. Sadly, there is nothing to show you around Berlin, just scrub and woods. They still spoke English to one another, though she'd insisted that in Berlin they speak German. We shall be a German couple. We must be German through and through, she'd said sternly. He'd smiled. Perhaps on Sundays we will speak English, and our children must learn English as a mother tongue. The sun negotiated its way past the stained window and the curtain, bathing Thomas's face in gold. He looked like a radiant Apollo. What would it be like, marriage to a god? But then the ancient gods had their weaknesses, while Thomas apparently had none. She almost wished he did. She hardly knew Berlin. When she was studying at the Dresden Academy, her friends told her that there was nothing to see in the vulgar capital, full of marching soldiers and notices telling you not to spit, unlike the refined, beautiful city of Dresden. Even the museums, they said, were fatiguing. She shook herself. She was looking forward to the future. London had become too familiar. Now was the moment for her to achieve something new in her work— to escape the eternal feminine concentration on charming domesticity. Perhaps she could work as an illustrator. English design was much admired by the Germans. She must forget the debates that had gone on so long in her mind, Thomas or not Thomas, Germany or not Germany. There was no going back now. It was a dull phrase, but the train seemed to pick it up. No going back, repeated the wheels, no going back. They grew closer to Dover and the boat and the honeymoon and Berlin. Thomas had fallen asleep. His mouth had dropped open. He looked vulnerable, as he hardly ever did. Only once before had she seen him truly vulnerable. From the beginning, he'd never doubted his feelings for her. They'd first met one hot day taking the steamer down the Elbe with a group of friends to picnic at Schloss Pilnitz. 
At once it was clear he admired her, though at first she hardly noticed him. They often met in this society of young people, living in what many considered the most beautiful city in northern Europe. Many of her friends were British, studying German or music or art, staying as paying guests with impoverished ladies. Irene was surprised at how free and easy life was. Her German friends lived with little interference from their parents, whereas her own bids for freedom in London had met with continual protests from her mother. In Dresden, one could easily meet any friend, male or female, and walk along the banks of the river or through the suburban streets with their